Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Healthy Dose of Dialogue podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Antonucci, Senior Vice President of Growth at Blue Shield of California. My guest today is John Backus. John is Chief Executive Officer of LA Care Health Plan, the nation's largest publicly operated health plan serving nearly 2.4 million Los Angeles County residents. He has more than 40 years of healthcare experience having served in leadership roles for various health plans across the country. In this episode, we'll get John's insights on the Medi-Cal landscape, key focus areas for LA Care Health Plan, and how they are partnering with providers, community organizations, and other health plans to make quality healthcare accessible to vulnerable populations. Thanks for joining me, John. My pleasure. It is so great to have you on, somebody with your experience and background. And I was doing a little bit of research on you and I wanted to learn a little bit more. And if you could share with the audience, how did you first get into healthcare? (laughs) Well, it is not a conventional path. Um, I had a regular job and I had a freelance graphic design business back in the day. And one of my freelance graphic design clients was this newly formed health maintenance organization. And um, uh, allegedly they were having a competition and I submitted a logo design and I won and got paid the princely sum of 150 bucks. And then they asked me to, would I design a brochure and then a letterhead and so forth and so on. So uh, during their pre-operational period, I was their graphics guy. And then um, the, my day job was starting to, uh, didn't look good. So I went to them and said, look, I can't do this anymore. I gotta go look for a real job. And uh, the CEO said, well, why don't you come work for us? And I said, well, what would I do? And he said, well, you can be in sales. So I started out just as they were beginning operations as a sales rep. And 12 years later, I was the CEO. That's really neat to hear. And I remember reading an article about you where, you know, one of the things that you got interested in too was actually the ability to do something important. But I think you talked about sitting in a provider's office and really seeing the opportunity to change things and make them better. And and that was part of what inspired you to continue. Yeah, about six months into uh, my career, I was in our first health center. This was a staff model HMO. And we had this beautiful health center and I was walking through and looking around at the people waiting. And I said, you know, we're really making a difference in people's lives here. I'm in. So that's when I decided, okay, this wasn't just a landing place. This was a career. And when you think about your time from when you started in healthcare to now, if you had to boil it down to just some of the biggest things that have changed from your perspective, but also maybe some things that have stayed the same. What would you say to that? Well, I'd say the one thing that stayed the same is everybody's complaining about the cost of healthcare. And they were doing that when this HMO I started with opened its doors in January of 1977. I'd say the biggest change since then and now is measurement. In the beginning, nobody measured anything. And now, uh, and I think managed care can take the credit for this, 
Um, I remember early employers who had to kind of offer the HMO if it was federally qualified were like ah, grumbling. And they began to ask for what am I getting paid for? So the industry led the development of HEDIS and some of these other measures, which are now standard in our business. But I think it introduced the idea of continuous quality improvement. You measure stuff, you see what the results were, you go back and look at it again and make changes and then measure it again. So that continuous quality improvement cycle, I think is embedded in healthcare now. And I think it has been beneficial, uh, but we're still complaining about the cost. Yeah, you know, I started my career about 25 years ago in New York City, and I think you and I have chatted in the past on this. I, I started at a place called Hip Health Plan of New York at the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and I started there, and I did some of my first work was, you know, doing survey research, but also NCQA, National Committee of Quality Assurance, and HEDIS measures. And I was going to, I was just curious to get your opinion on quality measures themselves. So uh, there's, they're important. Uh, there's also, a, and I've heard you talk about this, a place to be careful because you can measure too many things or it can be too much of an administrative burden. Where do you think we are with finding that balance of measuring the right things and uh, today? Well, we haven't reached that place where we're measuring just what we need to measure to know what we're doing. Um, I, I find uh, that's what's happened probably in the last 10 years is the appetite for data has become insatiable mostly on the part of government. And uh, it's, I think, one of the things we in the business have to sit down as partners with regulators and administrators and legislators and say, look, yeah, we all wanna have the data, but the amount of time and money we're spending in collecting it and sending it and then not seeing it being put to some use is a cause for concern. And I do think we need to bring that to the attention of the people that are asking for it. Now, the thing that I think is beginning to happen is we're beginning to broaden the measures, which hopefully will crowd out some of the less valuable ones to begin to look at the social determinants as part of the measurement uh, continuum. And I think that's great. Uh, I think I talked to you once before, I, the term social determinants have held, you know, like fingernails on a blackboard. What we're really talking about barriers to people getting the right care in the right place at the right time. And I think that's very important, particularly in Medi-Cal, uh, because most of the programs that have been designed to improve healthcare are really aimed at uh, a cohort of people who have had insurance, are used to it, and also have uh, the resources to participate, which doesn't happen a lot with folks that are in Medi-Cal. So I think we, if we begin to look at these environmental conditions that are shaping and influencing the health status of the people we're responsible for and include a measurement of that, I think that would be a gigantic step forward from where we are today. And you know, now getting a bit more into LA Care Health Plan itself, I also wanted to provide some of our listeners, some of, some of our listeners will have expertise in Medicaid um, or Medi-Cal specifically, but many won't. Could you describe what Medi-Cal is and who it covers and then describe maybe even how that relates to things that I know I've heard you answer really, really in a nice digestible way, covered California and sort of the populations that that, that um, covers? 
Sure. Well, up until 1965, the United States did not have any public health programs or insurance programs, and yet we had a, a growing and robust commercial insurance industry. 1965, we passed adopted Medicare and Medicaid, and Medicare was for folks who were over 65. I believe disability was added shortly thereafter, uh, and so it was really mostly based on age. And then uh, Medicaid was adopted at the same time uh, as a means-tested program so that if you had an income below 100% of the federal poverty level, you could apply for uh, Medicaid and, and get access to coverage. In the beginning, as you know, and it's still true today, it's a shared program between the feds and the states. So unlike Medicare, which has one national definition, the benefits are the same from coast to coast, uh, Medicaid has 50 different varieties, I guess 55 if you count DC and Puerto Rico and those places. And, uh, but by and large, it's worked. Um, we now have 80 million people in the United States relying on Medicaid, 60 million rely on Medicare, and a little over 150 million still get their insurance uh, through their employer commercially. Um, so Medicaid has done a I think a great deal by being there and being a um, safety net program, which is what it was intended to be. Uh, two things that really strike me. Number one, during COVID, where would we have been without Medicaid? Particularly since the Affordable Care Act expanded coverage by allowing the states of their choice to raise the threshold to 138% of the federal poverty level. And all the people that were covered under the individual marketplace exchanges that came with that. Had those people remained uninsured when COVID hit, all the care would have been at the emergency room doorsteps for these people if they even went to get it. So I think we have to look and say, look, as a public, public health effort, Medicaid has been a huge success. Now, the interesting thing about Medicaid is that in the 56 years that we've been in this, it has migrated from being a government administered program to being a partnership between state governments and managed care plans, which are either private, for-profit, not-for-profit, or like we are public. So if you look around the country today, 40 states use managed care to run their Medicaid programs. And 80, almost 80% of the folks who rely on Medicaid are in a managed care plan. Now, why is that? Well, first of all, state governments are not set up to run what's demanded of a Medicaid plan. And uh, I think what they said is, look, we, we don't know how to control the cost. We don't know how to forecast and so forth. So if we sort of assign it or partner with these private companies and give them the risk, then, you know, we're done. We've washed our hands of it. And I think what managed care has done is exactly that. We've looked for, particularly when you consider the reimbursement for Medicaid is so low, uh, we've done things ahead of commercial, I think. We've done capitation payments to primary care doctors. We've done global cap payments to healthcare systems because we said, look, there aren't enough dollars for this to work on a fee-for-service basis, but if we give you a, a budget 
and said, you've got this many dollars to take care of this many people, then we're beginning to get into population health management. So I think Medicaid has contributed a lot to um, the progress we're making. Uh, we certainly haven't gotten to universal coverage yet, and we certainly haven't tamed the cost uh, bugaboo, but I think we have built a number of processes and devices that are proving to be um, durable and offer us long-term solutions. And yet, Medicaid winds up being the poorest reimbursed of the ways we do things. <clears throat> Commercial and set a market rate. <clears throat> Medicare is a rate set by the government. And then the amount of money available for Medicaid is a shadow of the other two forms of reimbursement. Thanks, John. And LA Care Health Plan also has uh, some membership within Covered California as well outside of Medi-Cal. Yes, uh, when uh, covered when the individual market exchanges were created, um, the Board of Governors of uh, LA Care decided that they should get into the business, even though it was considered commercial and somewhat outside of their bailiwick as a Medicaid managed care plan. But the thought was that people uh, lose eligibility for Medicaid, They're, they may earn a dollar more, uh, but quite often they're not necessarily getting uh, access to commercial health insurance if their income rises. So the idea was that if we had participation in that, there would be a landing place for our members who lost eligibility because their income went up they could go to the marketplace exchange, Covered California, and buy in and get pretty healthy subsidy. Likewise, we knew the people who came into Covered California who were just above the threshold, if they had a reverse in fortune, they'd land up back and they'd land up in Medicaid. So we thought by being on both sides of that, it would offer our members the ability to go back and forth, and it would offer us our providers as a way not to lose the patient because they suddenly became ineligible for one program or the other. So we have about 100,000 uh, lives in uh, covered California. And over the six years that we've been in the program, uh, we've had 35,000 people make that transfer back and forth. And I'm glad we did it. It's also been a wonderful uh, challenge for us as an organization to broaden our um, business skills because we had to learn how to collect a premium, which we didn't have to do with Medicaid. And uh, so uh, it's introduced a lot more sophistication to our business and our operating systems. I'm certainly glad we did it. Thanks. And I've heard you speak uh, as well, and I want to give you an opportunity to speak about just some phenomenal work that LA Care Health Plan is doing in some key areas. So we kind of touched on quality. And so quality is one of those. When you came on board, I think you had some improvement areas that you wanted to see happen. That was one. The other one's food insecurity, housing, and primary care. So, you know, just teeing up a general question for you, whether it's those or anything else you'd want to add, what's LA Care Health Plan been up to in terms of advancing your mission and serving, uh, and serving the populations that you serve, significantly being Medi-Cal? So when I arrived here six years ago, I was struck by the persistently mediocre quality scores that the plan had. And I thought, you know, 
and people seem to have the attitude, well, it's Medicaid. And I thought, well, that's got to stop. So um, when I looked, peeled the onion back, uh, we had between us and our plan partners, and I should uh, note that we have three plan partners, uh, Blue Shield Promise, part of your empire, um, Anthem, and Kaiser. And these are artifacts of when the plan started in 1997. But we really like our plan partners. It gives our members more choice. Uh, they join LA Care, they can stay with us or they can pick one of these three. So between us and Anthem and uh, Blue Shield, we had about 60 IPAs we were contracting with, which you know are referred to in the trade as delegated entities. And what was happening is when I looked at the quality scores of the delegated entities, they were all over the map. I mean, some were way up there, some were down at the bottom. And the one measure that struck me, which uh, was the HEDIS measure on immunizations by the age of two, I thought, my God, we've been in this business for almost 20 years. We should have that one nailed. But yet we had some groups whose um, compliance rate was as low as 5%. So that led me to say, we got to do something about this. So we created a report card for IPAs. And you and Anthem joined in with us. Kaiser, of course, has no delegated entities, but they agreed to be one of the groups we would measure. So for six years now, we've been measuring the performance of the IPAs on access and availability, HEDIS scores, um, we had CAP scores, member satisfaction. We have uh, five uh, utilization metrics. And then not to lose anyone in the audience, we're counting, we're also counting timely submission of encounter data, which in a capitated system, the encounter data is gold, you need it. So we've started that. And um, I would say here we are six years later, we've seen a material improvement of the scores of our participants. Uh, they've gone up by 20 to 30 points. But the most important measure to me was our NCQA accreditation, which had been going this way. It had dropped in uh, six years from a 92 to a 76, and it dropped a little bit further. We've now reversed the trend and we're now in the low 80s and we're climbing. And our Blue Shield partners and our Anthem partners and our Kaiser partners are all working jointly to make this improvement. And we started three years ago, we said, you know, the providers are always kind of complaining that all we do is yell at them, um, but they're not doing something. So we started a provider recognition dinner and we, the top uh, performers on that report card are honored in an annual dinner. This year we had to do it virtually, but it's, it's really a way of recognizing and reinforcing what our mission is to provide access to quality care for the vulnerable populations in our community. So I'm pretty proud of that. On the primary care issue, as you know, finding primary care doctors, particularly in the safety net is tough. So I went to our board of governors um, a few years ago and I asked them to take 5% of our unassigned reserves, which we figured in any given year was about $30, $31 million and asked them for a five-year commitment of $155 million, which we've used for a program called Elevating the Safety Net. And in that program, we offer grants to clinics and practices that will hire a new primary care doctor or psychiatrist to come work in the safety net. 
uh, that wasn't here before. They can't hire the guy across the street. They've got to bring some new body in. Um, and uh, we give them grants of $125,000. And then uh, if, assuming that those uh, candidates have a lot of medical school debt, if they agree to stay for three years, we'll retire up to $180,000 of their medical school debt. And the idea was to be able to compete with Kaiser and the academic medical centers. And I'd say, and since we started that in September of 18, we've given out 170 grants. 130 doctors have been hired, and about half of them have applied for medical school debt relief. To build a pipeline for the future, we've awarded eight full four-year medical scholarships in the last three years, four at UCLA, Geffen, and four at the Charles R. Drew School of Medicine and Science in South LA. Our goal was to get a pipeline of physicians who would uh, look like the people they're taking care of. So we said to both these schools, you can identify the first year student coming in the door who said, oh, based on our history, this person will come back and work in the safety net. So of the 24 scholarships to date, half are women and all but two are people of color. So we're very proud of that. And nobody's dropped out of school. They're all still in school. I feel like I got 24 kids in school and I'm calling them all every weekend. What are you doing? You know, just kidding. Um, anyway, we've done other programs within that funding that I think are important. And then the last thing that I think you were alluding to that I um, think is very important is it's one thing to measure what these social determinants are or catalog what the barriers are, but then you got to do something about it. So we have been using our unassigned reserves to fund programs where we're trying to build up a database to be able to show regulators and legislators that you, you put some money into this, addressing these sort of barriers, you're going to help improve the quality of the care of the beneficiary. Not necessarily you're going to save money, but you will in many cases do that. So we have funded programs around um, nutritionally tailored meals. We're, we're paying for one program. Where we're paying for nutritionally tailored meals for 150 of our members for a year. And we're studying the pre and post utilization of services as a result of that. This has been done in other places and it always shows a material improvement. We also put $20 million into permanent supportive housing, and that fund for a five-year period is uh, providing housing for 279 individuals or families that were otherwise homeless. Uh, and then we're funding recuperative care, which uh, up until recent, uh, up until next year is not a covered Medicaid benefit. But as we had homeless people coming out of inpatient care, rather than send them back to the street, We've sent them to recuperative care beds. So they're there for 90 days. And during that 90 days, every effort is made to find them permanent supportive housing so they don't, don't go back to the streets. And again, we're measuring <clears throat> pre and post intervention, the utilization of services. And in most cases, these investments do result in reduced ER care, readmissions, and a host of other expenses. Is it dollar for dollar? Probably not, but you know, here's the bottom line. We already spend a fortune on social services in this country, nowhere near what other first world countries do. But what I would like to demonstrate 
is if we integrate the social service delivery with the healthcare, knowing that we've surveyed and identified an issue that's affecting their health, we should then help be the agent that delivers the social service that will address that. Really impactful stuff that you're doing, John. And I've read about a lot of these programs and services and I love both the practicality of it, but also just how it's being measured and what you're doing. And for our listeners out there, you've heard HEDIS a couple of times, just so you know, it's the Healthcare Effectiveness Data and Information Set. It's a standard uh, that's used in healthcare and becomes important. And then in Medi-Cal, there's something called MCAS or um, Managed Care Accountability Set as well that that's uh, used. John, I wanted to ask you, um, when you think about Medi-Cal, and the unique needs of the people and the vulnerable population that it serves. What are some myths or misperceptions um, that people may have about Medi-Cal and, you know, that you'd like to shed some light on? Well, number one, a third of the people on Medi-Cal work. Um, and it was quite evident at the beginning of this pandemic. Uh, I think here, based on data we had for Los Angeles, Oh, I'd say about 25% uh, of the Medi-Cal beneficiaries had full-time jobs working more than 20 hours a week. And maybe another um, seven or 8% had uh, part-time work less than 20 hours a week. So when the pandemic hit, everyone said, oh my God, everyone is rushing, sign up for Medi-Cal. Well, they didn't because they were already here because these are people who were earning up to 138% uh, of the federal poverty level, which meant they had a job in the hospitality industry, housekeeping, they were restaurant waiters, kitchen help, valets. They were the ones that were out of work. They already had the health insurance, but they now had no income. And what we saw was a skyrocket, skyrocketing applications for food stamps or CalFresh as they call it here in California. So again, Medicaid was there as a safety net for these folks in a pandemic. But then we had the issue that they still had other things that had to be addressed. So we start, started doing food pantries at um, our community resource centers, which we um, you know, do those jointly with Blue Shield Promise. I, we had 30 or 40 last year. And every time we had one, we gave away everything and there was still a line. So this food issue is serious and, it, and we're continuing those food pantries today. Now, what have you seen uh, the pandemic do in terms of maybe accelerating uh, trends uh, for Medi-Cal in, in things that you wanna see take place? Well, there, there are two big things. I mean, everyone's talked about telemedicine and you know when the pandemic emergency was declared, CMS, took off their ridiculous um, prohibition of paying for telemedicine. And of course it's taken off and it has saved many of the safety net practices because they've still been able to function by substituting telemedicine for in-person visits. And hopefully that genie's out of the bottle and nobody at CMS is thinking, well, and it's over, we're gonna go back to that. Too late. Um, but I think the most important lesson to come out of COVID uh, as it relates to Medicaid is it was our members that took the brunt of infections, hospitalizations, and deaths. 
For instance, 44% of our members in Medicaid here in Los Angeles County are um, Latino. They were getting infected, hospitalized, and dying at three times the rate of everyone else. So if this doesn't put a um, spotlight on the fact that these social determinants are real barriers to somebody's improved health, I don't know what will. And so it just shines a light on the uh, inequities in our system and the real need to address them in a meaningful way. So um, we are hopeful that we can use this lesson to advance the kind of things I was talking about before of integrating social services more with healthcare so they're done synergistically to get to a total benefit improvement, not just on money, but on quality of life. And there are things beyond what we can do in Medicaid that should be lessons learned from the statistics from COVID so that we began to improve people's lives. Thanks, John. I'd love to turn now to, to more of a personal note for you. What's one thing that you learned in 2020 that you think is going to benefit yourself in 2021 and beyond? You know, I was one of those guys who thought, I can't work from home. Uh, I'm the CEO. I got to be there in the office. I mean, it's like, how can you be the captain of a ship if you're not on the bridge? And uh, <laughs> the first day I worked from home, uh, March 18th, 2020, I wrote an email to all the employees saying, hey, we're off on this new adventure and thanks for your cooperation, blah, blah, blah. I got a lot of feedback. So I wrote one the next day and the next day and the next day. And I did one every workday through the end of August. And then now I do it three days a week. And I have learned more about my employees of LA Care than I did sitting in my damn office. And it's been, it's been a two-way street. I get feedback, it's get, God, I never thought I could have an email with the CEO. And I'm going, well, why didn't you? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. So the um, engagement, with our staff is higher than it than it's ever been for me personally. I think they would tell you they know more about me. Maybe they know too much, but you know they know about my dog and my kids and all that. But it has built. It's been a way to build our culture, and so my takeaway from that is, boy, don't be don't be such an old guy that you can't accept the idea of doing something new. And that was the biggest takeaway for me. I love that, John. And, you know, I've seen similar things for myself, for, you know, Blue Shield of California. It really, you know, provided an opportunity for people that take it or leaders that take it or employees that take it to share more about themselves because your work world's been smashed together in many cases with your personal life. And, uh, and I, I love the way you've been intentional about it because it's interesting, you know, had the pandemic not happened, to your point, it, you know, those types of uh, efforts or initiatives or sharing that type of thing wouldn't, wouldn't have occurred the same way. So it, it does open up new opportunities. I, I love that you shared that. What is uh, one thought or ask that you would have for anyone listening to this podcast? Well, the one thought I would have or ask for anyone listening to this is a result of what's happened in the last year. 
particularly as it relates to COVID. Um, you know, here at, um, in Los Angeles County, we've lost 23,000 people have died. Uh, within our company, two have died. Uh, and 10% of our employees were infected and they're working remotely. So it was community-based infection. So I guess the value of life and the value of making the most of every day has become much more important. And um, I would hope everyone out there would think of that. And as we get back to a new normal, I hope everyone will be kinder to each other, uh, which would have a lot to do with addressing the civil disobedience and the inequality in our society is be an active listener and appreciate what you've got and see what you can do to make that available to other people. That's excellent. And for our listeners, thank you for taking the time to listen. I hope you walked away with just the passion that John Backus brings to what he does with LA Care Health Plan. And importantly, the focus on things like quality, primary care, housing, food insecurity, so many good things happening uh, to serve some of our most vulnerable populations. For more information about LA Care Health Plan, visit www.lacare.org. And join us next time as we continue to bring you a healthy dose of insights and perspectives based on conversations with leaders who are transforming healthcare. You can subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Dose of Dialogue.